Last week in our study, we saw that Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden because of their rebellion against God. Today, we're going to see the harsh reality of what life was really like after the fall. We're going to see a lot of firsts in Genesis 4. The first pregnancy, the first birth, the first family, the first brothers, the first case of sibling rivalry, the first worship service, the first time the word sin is mentioned in the Bible, the first murder, the first cover-up, the first recorded conflict between the seed of woman and the seed of the serpent, the first death, and the first martyr. We've got a lot of ground to cover this morning, so let's get started. Let's begin by looking at the destructive spread of sin that occurs after the fall. In Genesis 4, verses 1 and 2, we get some of the setting and context as the story of Cain and Abel begins. Now, the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain, and she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Again, she gave birth to his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of the flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. The first thing we see happening outside of the Garden of Eden is God giving Adam and Eve a son. Can't you just imagine the excitement in Eve's voice when she realizes she has just birthed a human? Remember, ladies, this has never been done before, okay? <laughs> she had no manuals. She had no doctor's visits. She had no friends to, you know, to call, ring up and say, hey, something's happening here. She births a baby. She looks at this baby boy in wonder. She counts his fingers, his toes. She acknowledges that he is a gift from the Lord, a miracle. We saw in our lesson this week that Eve's remark in verse 1 is the first recorded instance of God's name being said out loud. And what she says reveals the relationship that she has with the Lord. She names the baby Cain, a name that sounds a lot like the Hebrew word that means acquired or gotten. Eve recognizes the power of God in the creation of life when she says, with the help of the Lord, I have gotten a child. And as she looks at the child in her arms with a heart full of hope, she may even think, could this be the one the seed God was talking about in Genesis 3.15, the deliverer who will crush the head of the serpent. But it will not be long before her hopes are shattered. In verse 2, we see that Eve has another son, Abel. Abel grows up and becomes a shepherd. His brother Cain grows up and becomes a farmer. From this point on in the story, most of the focus is on Cain. In fact, Abel never speaks a word, but Cain does, and so does God. 
look at verses 3 through 5. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. On the outside, these brothers had a lot in common. The same parents, the same home life, the same spiritual upbringing. They both grew up hearing stories about how their parents had loved their time in the garden, but had been expelled from that lush paradise because of their sin. They both had good jobs, and apparently... They both have been taught to worship the Lord because we see here that they both bring an offering to him. And then we see a major difference. Abel's offering is accepted by the Lord. Cain's offering is rejected. So what is the difference? What is the difference in the two offerings? The text here doesn't give us a really clear answer to that, and commentators have some different opinions. Some think that it was because Cain just brought some of what he had grown. A little bit of greenery, some flowers, a couple of cabbages, throw in a carrot or two, here's the offering. While Cain, while Abel, while Abel brought the best of the best, the fattest of the firstborn of the flock. Could it be, could it be that God knew that Cain was just going through the motion? Just going through the motions. While Abel, on the other hand, was giving his very best. Other commentators think that it had something to do with the type of offering it was. A grain offering versus a blood offering. We saw last week at the end of Genesis 3 that God demonstrated the need for the substitutionary death of an innocent victim to cover sin. When he did what? When he killed two animals, he took those animal skins to cover up Adam and Eve. And it could be that God taught Adam and Eve about the need for sacrifice and that they had taught that in turn to their two sons. So by failing to give a blood offering, Cain gives no indication that he recognizes that he is a sinner. But what we do know for sure about the difference in the two offerings has to do with what was going on on the inside of the two brothers. Hebrews 11.4 says this, By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. The biggest difference between the two brothers is that Abel has faith and Cain does not. John Phillips writes, 
Cain decked out his altar with boughs of holly and loaded it with fruits and flowers. It was fragrant, beautiful, and the works of his hands. It ignored Calvary, said it not the word of God, offended God, and was pointedly rejected by God. Regardless of whatever offering Cain would have brought, God would have rejected it. Why? Because of the condition of his heart. And when his offering is rejected, we see just how evil Cain's heart really is. Verse 5 is the first mention of anger in the Bible. Cain is so angry, he cannot hide it. It's written all over his face. Ed Welch gives this insight about anger. Anger will assert itself. It refuses to be contained. If anger is in our hearts, it has our hearts. If anger is in our hearts, it has our hearts. Ladies, anger is an emotion. It is a feeling. And although feelings are real, they're not always true. Our feelings are the way our flesh talks to us. And right now, at this point in Genesis 4, Cain's flesh is shouting at him. We've got to be very careful not to allow our feelings to guide our hearts. You see, at first, Cain was just mad at his brother for having a better offering. But then the longer he stewed on what had happened, he gets mad at God. Cain approached God on his own terms. And when he realizes that God is not going to lower himself to his standards, he gets irate. Let's look at verses 6 and 7. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you but you must master it. The questions that God asked Cain here are rhetorical. God already knows the answers. But here we see a picture of God as the wonderful counselor trying to get Cain to face his sin. And so to do so, he gives Cain a visual picture He personifies sin as a predator crouching at his door, ready to pounce and take him down. We'll come back to that picture again in just a little bit. What God is telling Cain is that he is on the brink of destruction. A battle is going on for his soul, and right now, sin has the upper hand. But Cain still has time to change. If he will just do well. If he will just do well. Instead of allowing sin to rule over him, Cain can repent and he can have dominion over it. 
The Puritan theologian John Owen said it well, always be killing sin or it will be killing you. Sadly, God's warning bounces right off of Cain's hardened heart and he begins his willful downward spiral into sin. Verse 8. Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? He, God, said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is too great to bear. Behold, you've driven me this day from the face of the ground, and from your face I will be hidden, and I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. So the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord appointed a sign for Cain, so that no one finding him would slay him. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Let's walk through these verses and trace the effect of sin in Cain's life. In the span of just eight verses, Cain goes from making an offering to the Lord to being permanently removed from his presence. That, ladies, is how quickly sin moves. When Cain gets angry, the ocean floor in his heart is fractured. The wave of anger begins to spread. The swell grows and grows until it becomes a full-fledged tsunami that is going to ravage Cain's life. As Donna said last week, the enemy feeds on uncrucified flesh. The downward spiral in Cain's life escalates quickly. What began with anger then moves to deception. The NIV gives us a little better picture of what happens in verse 8. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother and killed him. So we see here that Cain deceives his brother. He says, hey, Abel, let's go out and look at this field over here. Why does he do it? He wants to get him away from his family so Adam and Eve cannot see or hear what is about to happen. And when he gets them out in the field, the anger in Cain's heart overtakes him. The beast springs and he murders his brother, Abel. 
This is the way that sin works. Do you remember back in Genesis 3 that the serpent had to talk Eve into sin? But now, sin has taken such a hold in Cain's heart that God cannot even talk him out of sin. We see the darkness of the human heart just one chapter removed from the Garden of Eden. Premeditated murder in the first degree. And why would Cain kill his brother? To remove the competition. He doesn't want to be compared to his brother anymore. He wants to remove the competition and he wants to lash out at God by killing the man whose offering he has accepted. One minute, Cain is making an offering to the Lord. The next, he's murdering his brother. And then after he kills Abel, he tries to cover it up and lie. Cain moves from anger to deception to murder to lying. When God asks Cain, where is your brother? He says, I don't know. There's a total denial of responsibility on Cain's part for what he has done. God doesn't ask the question because he does not know what has gone on. He asks the question to try to get Cain to confess, to try to get him to repent. That is the loving God that we have. Just like he did when he confronted Adam and Eve in the garden. But when he confronted Adam, what did Adam do? He owned up to what he had done. Here we see that Cain outright lies, and the spiral continues its downward descent into pride. When Cain flippantly replies to God, am I my brother's keeper? Another layer of crust forms around his heart as he basically retorts to the Almighty One, the creator of the universe. Who do you think I am? The shepherd's shepherd? I mean, isn't that your job, God, to keep up with your person? If ever you have doubted the mercy and grace of God, doubt no more. It's only amazing grace that would have kept God from reaching down and pinching Cain's prideful head off at that point. And just when you thought it could not get any worse, it does. Apparently, Cain has buried his brother's body thinking that no one would notice. That's what pride does. The population of the world has just gone from four to three, and he thinks mom and dad won't notice. <laughs> but God has seen the whole thing. He hasn't missed anything. He has heard the cry of Abel's blood as it spilled out on the ground, and he confronts Cain with a piercing question. What have you done. Your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And before Cain can say another word, God issues 
a twofold punishment. First of all, Cain is cursed from the ground. He has defiled the ground with the blood of Abel, so no longer will the ground pr produce anything for him. His life as a successful farmer is over. Verse 11 here in Genesis 4 is an echo of Genesis 3 when God cursed the serpent in verse 14 and then went on to curse the ground in verse 17. But here, God takes it a step further. He curses Cain himself. This is the first time in Scripture when a human is cursed, which identifies Cain with the serpent. John will later make this, correct, this connection clear in 1 John 3.12 when he writes that Cain is of the evil one. So Cain is cursed from the ground, and then second, God sentences Cain to be a wanderer and a vagabond. Warren Wiersbe writes, a vagabond has no home, a fugitive is running from home, a stranger is away from home, but a pilgrim is heading home. Deuteronomy 13:19 says, and this is God speaking, I, God, have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse, so choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants. Cain makes the wrong choice, and instead of being a pilgrim in life, he will now be a stranger, a vagabond, and a wanderer. When Cain replies to God, there is no repentance. There is no fear of God. There is no regret for the loss of innocent life. He is only concerned about the consequences of his own punishment. Notice Cain doesn't say, my guilt is too much for me to bear. What does he say? My punishment is too much for me to bear. Cain cares only about Cain. Over and over, we see him using personal pronouns. I, me, my. He's afraid that someone is going to kill him and his only focus is on his own self-preservation. In a sermon he preached, Tim Keller said that Martin Luther's definition of sin was man curved in upon himself. What he's saying there is that sin always is focused on self. It always chooses self above God or others. Sin is about furthering our own agenda. Cain is not at all repentant over what has happened to Abel. Instead, he says, I'm really upset about what is about to happen to me. Being upset over the consequences of his sin is not repentance. That kind of unrepentant sorrow only reveals just how self-centered Cain really is. Yet, yet, God still cares about Cain. So in compassion, God tells Cain that he will place a mark on him so that he will be protected from being killed. We don't know exactly how God marked Cain, 
But this we know. It was a mark of kindness and grace. God's protection gives Cain time to repent. But apparently, sin has a gorilla glue hold on Cain's heart. And as the final thread in Cain's life becomes unraveled, the most tragic consequence of his sin is that he's permanently removed from the presence of God. But you know, sin doesn't just ruin an individual life. It is a pandemic that stains and ruins the entire culture. What we see in verses 17 through 24 about the descendants of Cain is very telling. Cain had relations with his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch, and he built a city and called the name of the city Enoch after the name of his son. Now to Enoch was born Erad, and Erad became the father of Mahujael, and Mahujael became the father of Methushael, and Methushael became the father of Lamech. Lamech took to himself two wives, the name of the one was Adah, and the name of the other, Zillah. Adah gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. As for Zillah, she also gave birth to Tubal-Cain, the forger of all implements of bronze and iron, and the sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. Verse 23, Lamech said, he actually, this was more like saying or recited a verse to his wives. Ada and Zillah, listen to my voice, you wives of Lamech. Give heed to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-seven. We see here the beginning of secular society, a society that is established apart from God. Cain gets married, has a son, builds a city, and the lineage of Cain is established. Even though Cain and his descendants are stained by sin, we see, though, they are still humans created in the image of God. How do we know that? because they are creating, and what they are creating is a culture, a very innovative culture, especially by the time we get to the sixth generation with Jabel, Jubal, and Tubalcane. In verse 20, we see a food chain being established by Jabel, who raises livestock to use for food. Then we see Jabel's artsy brother, Jubal, that's where we get the word Jubilee from, and verse 21, instruments are created and music is made. And not to be outdone, Tubal-Cain is the forger of all kinds of tools that are made of iron and bronze. But did you notice something as we were reading those verses? God is never mentioned. This is a culture that although it has many, many technological advances, 
it's turned its back on God. They are producing a culture, but it is a culture that is driven by the flesh and stained by sin. Sounds pretty familiar, doesn't it? In his book, Live No Lies, John Mark Comer says this, Our disordered desires, it's another way of saying our sins, are normalized in a sinful society, which functions as a kind of echo chamber for the flesh. A self-validating feedback loop where we're all telling each other what we want or what our flesh wants to hear. We are living in a culture where the media and the social media have become echo chambers that are normalizing sin. And that is what Jude calls in Jude 11, the way of Cain. That humanistic stain of sin that is permeating our culture today can be traced all the way back to Genesis 4. And within just one chapter of the garden, we see the way of Cain on the rampage in his descendant Lamech. First, we see here that polygamy is introduced. You'll remember in Genesis 2.24 that God laid out his design for marriage, the union of one man and one woman in a public covenant before God. In total disregard for God's design, Lamech goes outside the boundaries God has set and he marries two women. He is this arrogant, boastful, prideful man who says one woman is not enough for me. And you can hear the oppression in his voice when he condescendingly says, you wives of Lamech. This is the beginning of the oppression of women that is still prevalent today in many cultures. This is also the first record of rebellion against God's standard of marriage, and it opened wide the floodgate. Think about where we are today. It's getting to the place where people don't even say, how long have you been married? They say what? How long have you two been together? That happened to my parents just a couple of weeks ago. Really? <laughs> and homosexuality. Something that once was kept in the back of the closet has now been brought out and has been put on parade. Homosexual marriage is not God's design for marriage. It is man's perversion. Believing anything different from God's standard is, as Romans 1.25 says, exchanging the truth of God for a lie. Back to Lamech. Lamech is not only oppressive, he's also violent. He kills a young boy for wounding him, and the Hebrew word here for wound actually means bruise. A boy bruised Lamech, and he murders him. And then he writes a song about it. That is the foreshadowing of so many songs we hear today on secular radio that brag about sin. 
the way of Cain is devastating and it is saturating our culture. I'm going to close with this. We have a large pond in our backyard. And over the last 15 years, that pond has been the home to a number of ducks. A few years ago, we had uh, several ducks hatch in the middle of a storm. And apparently, it traumatized the mother duck because she would have absolutely nothing to do with her baby ducklings. So it was up to Bill and me to take care of them. We brought them inside. We dried them off. We got out a heat lamp. We kept them inside, feeding them, taking care of them for several weeks until they were big enough to put outside. And when we moved them outside, we put them in a pen up close to the house to where I could see them. We can keep an eye on them and try to keep them safe. One Saturday morning, I was looking out my kitchen window, and all of a sudden, I saw all the little ducks right there in the pen, and they were in one more frenzy. And then I saw what was going on over in the corner of the pen was a huge hawk. It was crouched down, trying to hide itself, just hoping that one of those little ducks would get close enough for it to reach its talons in and grab the duck and devour it. In Genesis 4, 7, God's warning to Cain, that sin is crouching at your door, is a vivid reminder that sin is like a wild animal waiting for its next victim. I tried to talk to those ducks. I went outside. <laughs> I shooed the hawk away. I got right down in their little beaks, and I said, hawks are not your friend. <laughs> they are dangerous. Stay away from them. Stay on the lookout. But sin is just like that. Ladies, it is always looking for its next victim, the next one that it's going to take down. Do you remember what God said to Cain, do well. Say that with me, do well. Because if we do not do well, if we are not careful to repent and to obey the Lord, sin will pounce on us and devour us. Our baby ducks did not end well. Either that halt or another one came and grabbed every one of them, killed them, and ate them. Neither nature nor Satan has any mercy. A year from now, you're not going to remember 99% of what I've said today. But if you'll do the one thing I'm going to ask you to do, you will place yourself in a powerful position to avoid being mastered and devoured by sin 
and the enemy. I want to ask you to hide the words of Genesis 4-7 in your heart. Memorize it, meditate on it, internalize it, pray it back to the Lord. There are memory verses there on the table for you that you can take with you. And for those of you who are watching us online, we'll have these for you in your Thursday email. Ladies, as Genesis 4-7 is etched firmly on our hearts, the Holy Spirit will be able to put us on notice when sin is crouching at the door of our life, just waiting for the right time to spring. He will use these words to open our eyes, to recognize the attacks of the enemy who's seeking who he may devour and who's crouching at your door waiting to attack you or your family. Life and death are being placed before you. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. And as James 1.15 tells us, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Death or life, just like Cain, the choice is yours.